Well, welcome everybody. It's good to have Dr. Schrader here with us. He's like family in a way, and I guess we claim each other, and that's part of the fun. But also, I appreciate his knowledge and the abilities that God has given him, and I'm looking forward to it together. Let's pick up our songbooks and stand, because we'll sing, I stand amazed in the presence. Number 102. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene And wonder how he could love me A sinner condemned unclean How marvelous, introduce our speaker. I'm glad that most everyone's had the opportunity to meet him. If you haven't, you'll get to uh, later in the evening. I hope that you all get to know each other pretty well. So our next song is number 344 in our songbooks. So open your songbooks to 344 and Joshua will lead us in My Hope is in the Lord and I'll pick up this stuff. There you go, Joshua. My hope is in the 
Jesus' righteousness for me. It is a privilege to introduce our guest speaker tonight. I've been looking forward to this Bible conference for a year now, having made contact with Dr. Rick last October. And we landed on these dates, and I'm glad that it worked out that way. It is a privilege to have Dr. Strader here with us. I'm looking forward to not just tonight on the topic of salvation, which is Probably one of the grandest topics there is. <laughs> and but for tomorrow night as well. Come and open the scriptures with us, Doc. All right. Thank you, Brother Matt. It is uh good to be back uh at Valley Baptist. It's been uh, we were trying to figure how many years, but uh when Aaron was ordained, he was ordained in this auditorium and we were here for that and for a Bible conference before that. So uh, we enjoy sharing four uh, grandkids. Now, somehow, our oldest child, Rebecca, married their oldest child, Aaron, and how two oldest kids can make it in a marriage. Uh, but they're proving that they can, because just this month, September, they celebrated their 19th anniversary. So so they're doing all right, and Aaron, of course, pastors up in uh in uh, Alaska, and uh, my theory has always been have your kids move places you'd like to go visit someday, so uh, that's one of the places that, that we go visit. I always pray for you, as I do, you know, you have your way of praying and your time and, and all, and uh, one of the things I do is I pray through things as I start in different states with the churches and the people I know. And so I always come through Montana in my prayer time every day, and I mention uh, Valley Baptist Church uh, every day in my prayers. And so uh, for friends and family and uh, just the ministry that, that God has placed here in the valley, uh, I pray for you and uh, uh, rejoiced uh, earlier this morning uh, Matt took me out to the foundation, you know, and we uh, looked around. I I had seen the plans for the church and kind of how it will be laid out and what's going to happen before, 
but to actually see uh, uh, the outline and the and the walls, uh, and uh, so I know that that'll be a project for you starting next spring and through through next year. So uh, we'll be praying for you for that too. So uh, good to be back and be with you. Um, the little booklet that I that you just received is a booklet I did this last year as an outreach tool uh, because of the salvation message in it, but also I just find a lot of people struggling with things like eternal security. Am I saved forever? If I'm saved once, is it is it always? And we're going to deal with that tomorrow night. And then beyond beyond security is assurance, knowing that you're saved, knowing that uh, if uh, that uh, you have eternal life. And then we'll end up Sunday night with evangelism, which I want to bring to you from the Great Commission. What is it then the church or, or God wants the church to do? And we're going to uh, talk about that Sunday night. So I hope these are profitable to you. Uh, that's why I wrote that that booklet. And and you know, just just last Saturday. A fellow called me up, wanted to meet with me, and one of our members had given him one of these booklets. And uh, he goes to an Assembly of God church. I know that church, and I know some really nice people from that church, but they don't teach eternal security. And so he said, you know, I'm listening to my church teach me this, and I don't think I believe that. I think I believe once you're saved, you're always saved. And so he he and I are doing kind of a monthly uh, meeting and Bible study together. So... Uh, maybe it can be used that way, but I hope uh, for you also it's profitable. I want to start tonight in John chapter 3, and we're going to go to two books tonight. John chapter 3, so familiar because of John 3.16, and then also we will go to the book of Romans and the last two uh, points on your outline. I, I, re- I actually gave you pretty much the whole outline. There's nothing to fill in. Uh, you can just uh, write things in uh, as you would, uh, as you like to here. Uh, John chapter 3 sticks out to me for, for three big reasons. One is, you remember the man named Nicodemus. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus and uh, asks uh, about eternal life. And so we find this character entering into the Bible at this time. And at this point, Nicodemus was just a seeker. He goes away still lost, but he hears from Jesus uh, about being born again. And so we get our our expression, you must be born again, uh, from this conversation with with Nicodemus. He only appears in the Gospel of John. He's not in Matthew, uh, Mark, or Luke. And uh, the second time he appears is in chapter 7, because he's also a member of the council, the Sanhedrin. And uh, they're wanting uh, to condemn Jesus, and it's Nicodemus who's thinking these things through now. He's not a believer yet, but in chapter 7, he will say, yes, but does our, does, uh, do we condemn a man before we hear him? And of course, he had heard Jesus. He knew how powerful uh, those words were. And then we don't find him again until uh, Joseph of Arimathea, is taking the body of Jesus off the cross, and only John tells us that his helper was Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is helping him. Uh, obviously has received the Lord as Savior. Now he's willing to put his testimony out there in front of everyone, which he will suffer for, no doubt, in, 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 uh, in that place, for identifying with Jesus. So we have, we have Nicodemus here, and then the words of Jesus go probably uh, through 
uh, all the way down to uh, uh, verse 21. And if, if you have, happen to have a red letter uh, Bible, uh, they aren't any more inspired than the other verses. But I mean, it does tell you that he was speaking all the way down through there. Uh, so I, I think that this whole conversation was from Jesus to Nicodemus, probably so. The second thing that pops up in my mind is the reference to the brass serpent in verses 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Well, you remember that story from Numbers 21 in the Old Testament where God is, God has to bring his, his judgment, his punishment among the Israelites and so he brings these uh, poisonous snakes, serpents, among the people, and, and many are dying. And so the instruction to Moses is, make a serpent, put it on a pole, and put it where people can see it, and anyone who looks at that serpent will live. Amazing when you think about it, that that's what they had to do. Here's the thing that sticks out to me about that. The serpent was the problem. The serpent was the sin, if you will. That's what was killing people. And so God says, put that on the pole, and when you look at that, you will be healed. Sounds odd, doesn't it? But remember this. Jesus became our sin for us. And he was put on the cross of Calvary as our sin bearer. And so in a way, we are looking at where our sin should be, and that is nailed to that cross. And when you look to that, and you look to the Savior, you'll have eternal life. So we have that story there, and uh, it's a it's a wonderful story. And uh, later, uh, he will say in uh, in John chapter twelve, "If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me." It's the crucified Savior, the one who died for our sins, that draws people to Himself. When we think that he was our sin bearer. Now the third thing in the, in the chapter that sticks out is John 3.16 of course. And that's where if you notice on the outline we'll go here now for the first uh, two uh, thoughts in our message. So first of all I want to talk to you about the fact of salvation. That is the what. What is salvation? What is being said? And we'll look at just John 3.16 here as we consider this fact of salvation. Three simple things from this verse. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Thirdly, that whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. So first of all is that God loves you. There are people in our world, I, I know there must be people in Eureka, Montana, who have never heard someone say God loves you that God cares about you that God loved the whole world remember first of all that God created you right when we go back to chapter one if if we go back there in, in John 1 we find out in the first three verses that all things were made by him without him was not anything made that was made and we sang tonight in him was life and the light was the light of men so God created every person walking around in this world. That is through Adam and Eve and then through their children and their children and their children right down to us. God made us in his image as a matter of fact. And so we're every human being is in the image of God regardless of what they think about that, whether they believe in God or not, even whether they believe they're male or female, which seems to be a problem in our, in our day. 
but you can't change that because God made you the way he made you. And so he loves you. Uh, his image is in you. And you have to live forever somewhere, and God cares about that. So God loved the world. Now, I want you to notice two small words in this verse that are very important. And the first one is the little word, so. For God so loved the world. In that language that, that John is writing in, that Greek language, they, they have a way of writing that we don't have. And that is, you and I in English have to put things in word order. And that's why we have, for God so loved the world. And if the sentence order isn't right, we don't understand what's just been said. But in their language, they didn't have to put words in certain orders. They had prefixes and suffixes, to, and they could put them wherever they wanted, basically, in the sentence, and often they did. But they had a thing called an emphatic order, which means if I want to really emphasize something in this sentence, I put the most important word first, regardless of where it actually fits in a, in a sentence. And so you know what the first word in this, in John 3.16 is? So. Hutos is the word. So much God loved the world. You, if we say it like that, you hear the emphasis, right? So much God loved the world. If you said that first, everyone's ears would catch that. And so what he's saying is, this is how, this is how much God loves you. So much. That's, that's the first little word. The second little word is the word that. That word also, a preposition, it means to overflow, something that swallows something else up. I'll tell you where else this little word that is used is in Matthew 8.24 about Jesus being in the boat when the water was raging. And it says, Behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, in so much that the ship was covered with the waves. And that expression, in so much that, is exactly the same word you have here. So much God loved the world that his love overflowed the ship. His, his love overflowed this world. That God loved the world. Those two little words just stand out to me and give us that uh, fact that God loves us. But secondly, we have to also understand, of course, that he gave his son. It's not just that he loved us. He did something about it. He, he reached out to us. And if he had only loved us and that was it, uh, our salvation wouldn't have been bought for us. But he gave us his only begotten son, that beautiful expression that we have throughout the scripture. As a matter of fact, it occurs only nine times in the New Testament and only five times by John. Now, Paul can use that word to refer even to his resurrection and things like that. But when John uses it in his five times, John is talking about the Trinity and the way the Trinity was in eternity past. We call it the eternal sonship. We have Father, we have Son, we have the Holy Spirit. And as far as we know from the scripture, God is always in eternity past and always will be in eternity future known as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One essence of God, because there's one God, expressing himself in three persons. So when we say the only begotten Son, John wrote it like this. By the way, you have it twice in our passage in verse 16 and verse 18. 
And we had it twice in chapter 1, verse 14 of chapter 1. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Father and Son in eternity past. And, and the Son is given to us because of the great love of the Father for us, the only begotten Son. And in verse 18, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who's in the bosom of the Father from eternity, the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And so this only begotten Son, and then, by the way, in 1 John 4, 9, is his fifth reference with this word where he says, in this was manifested the love of God toward us because God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. So when he uses this expression, only begotten son, uh, he's, he's talking about uh, the, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity who came because God so loved us to do something for us. Remember, of course, he was born of a woman, right? He was virgin born, and we'll, we'll see that, uh, a little bit later tonight. He was born to die, and so the, the idea here is he has to be lifted up on a cross, and when he's lifted up, he will die. Even Paul ended that great passage in Philippians 2 in verse 8 like this, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. That's how much God loved us. Now, one of the thought in John 3.16 is the whosoever, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. God, he loved us, he gave his son for us, and whosoever can have this. Notice the gift, he gave it, right? You, you don't give a gift and expect payment for it, do you? Do you uh, give someone a gift and then uh, expect them to pay you? Or have you ever tried to pay because someone gave you a gift? It would be an insult, wouldn't it? And so God gave this gift freely to us. That's a lot of the theme of tonight's message. So the gift is there, but also it's a gift for everyone. So the he loved the world that whosoever believes. Uh, the one condition that comes along with it is what? Believe. He loved the world. He gave his son for everyone, for the whole world, that whosoever believes in him should not perish. Believe is the same as accept. We will see that in Romans uh, chapter 10 later. We have always believed. By the way, we're, we're known by two words in our circles, if you will. I still call myself a fundamentalist in the, in the good use of the word fundamentalist. It's a good word. It goes back a hundred years to where we, men had to fight liberalism who came, that came into this nation. And, uh, basically good men said, well, let's go back to the fundamentals of what God's word says. And let's see what the word says. That's why they were known as fundamentalists. But we're also known by the word evangelical, though there are some parts of that movement we might not identify with. But what that word evangelical means is that we preach and we are evangelistic. We preach a message to people. And that is, you must be born again. It's not just you're born a Christian. It's not just you're a Christian because you're in this church or denomination. You must Accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's what evangelicalism actually means. And in that sense, we are evangelicals also. We've always believed there's an ethical element, a volitional element to the gospel, that whosoever believes 
You must receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. Now, let me end this thought with, by, by uh, telling you a story about a young man from England in 1850. His name happens to be uh, Charles Spurgeon. And young Charles was 15 years old in 1850, and he was not born again. His father was a pastor, his grandfather was a pastor, uh, but he was not born again at age 15. And yet God had been working on him, and he was under conviction. And so he wanted to try to understand. He was listening to different messages, but he wasn't born again yet. So on a Sunday morning in 1850, he heads off to church on a winter day. But the, it was snowing, and the snowstorm got so bad that he couldn't make it to his own church where he was going. And on, But he was going because he was hungry for knowing the truth. He turned into the first church that had its doors open, and that was a little primitive Methodist church. And it was, the weather was so bad that the pastor couldn't even make it that day. So a man got up out of the church, and, and he was going to preach the, the sermon. Now, no one to this day knows who that man was or what his name was. And even in Spurgeon's autobiography, he says, we never found out who that was. But a man in the church got up and he turned to Isaiah 45, 22, which says this, look unto me and be ye saved all ends of the earth. And all this man could do, because he knew no other, is just say to his people, God says, look. Look at me. Look unto me. And Spurgeon relates, I would, you know, there were probably five or six people in the church that morning that's all because of the storm but here's a first time visitor a 15 year old boy and he just kept pointing pointing at him and said look look unto me Spurgeon said that was the moment of my salvation as a matter of fact in a book called my conversion Spurgeon says this as the moment before there was none more wretched than I was so within that second there was none more joyous it did not take any longer than a flash of lightning. It was done and never has it been undone. So if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. You know, there's an old song, look and live. My brother lived. Does some of you remember singing that? Look to Jesus now and live. Uh, that's what we, that's the promise, isn't it? And that's what comes out of John chapter 3. But let's go to the second thought in John chapter 3, and that is, there's a need, of course, for salvation. Not only the fact of it, that Jesus came, God loved us, but there's a need, and I want you to notice these three things, beginning in verse 17. There's a mission of the Son. If, he, if God gave us his Son and he came, we're told a couple things about it in verse 17. There is a, there is a negative and a positive, right? God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. That's what he did not come for. He didn't come to condemn the world. And you say, well, <laughs> the world without Jesus Christ, though, is lost and will go to a Christless eternity. But the, the point he's making, and will through the rest of this passage, is the world was already condemned. The world was condemned when Adam and Eve sinned. And everyone that is born from Adam and Eve, which is all of us, are sinners, for as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men because all have sinned. And so uh, the world was already condemned. Uh, there was nothing left to be done about that. That's not why Jesus came then. 
But what, what is the positive? Why did he come? But that the world through him might be saved. And so the reason he came, the mission of the Son, was to save the world. Again, whoever believes, whosoever believes. I believe personally in an unlimited atonement. And that is when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he died for everyone. He died for the whole world. Now, some good men differ over that fact, but I believe that that's true. His, his death is sufficient for everyone. It doesn't mean that everyone will be saved. It doesn't mean that, it, that they're forced to be saved, but it is sufficient. It will save if you'll come to him. So there's the mission of the Son, not to condemn, but to save. So what does the sinner do about it? What has the world done? Well, that's in verse 18, the response of the sinner. But before we leave verse 17, let me, let me add one more thing about the salvation for everyone. And that is right at the end of verse 17, that the world through him might be saved. There's an expression in that language, too, that gives doubt. And we have it in English, but we have to add a word to it. Might be. You may be. That doesn't mean you will be. That you might be saved. It's called a subjunctive mode in in that language. And that, again, gives us that ethical, uh, volitional element here. Not all the world will be saved, but he came that you might be. And I think that you can be, is my opinion. So, what do we have? The response of the sinner? Well, he who believes, first of all. He that believeth on him is not condemned then. You can come to Jesus Christ. You can look to him. You can believe on him and accept him. And guess what? That condemnation that has been on the whole world since Adam and Eve is lifted from you. And not condemned any longer. We'll again go into that a little more even tonight. But notice then the, the second thing, which again is the negative thing. But he that believeth not is what? Condemned already. Condemned already in his sin and the fact that he does not believe in the name of the Son of God. In other words, the way to be condemned is to do nothing. The way to be condemned is to stay like you are. A sinner uh, by birth uh, from our parents, Adam and Eve, under God's condemnation. And so we are under that condemnation because we're sinners and because we do nothing. And when the gospel is presented to us, we say, I don't want it. I'll stay where I am. I don't want to go there. And that's what verse 18 is saying. When we go to the book of Romans, we'll read in verse, in chapter 3, verse 10, as it is written, then there's none righteous, no, not one. That's, that Paul's, is Paul's conclusion of the first three chapters. No one's righteous. Not one person condemned and staying there. And in verse 23, of course, for all has sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everyone. Paul's conclusion again. Or listen to John 3.36 at the very end of our third chapter here. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. But he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. And then he says, but the wrath of God abideth on him. The wrath of God remains on him. And so all you have to do to be condemned, to spend eternity in hell, the lake of fire, 
without ever uh, being able to get out is do nothing. Stay as you are, and the wrath of God remains on you. So the third thing is the problem of the world then. The problem of the world then is seen twofold. First of all, in verse 19, this is the condemnation that light has come into the world. (laughs) The world is in darkness and light comes into it and men love the darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Have you ever been in in a dark place that's been dark for a long time uh, maybe your garage or some basement or something like that, and uh, you go down and it's pitch black, you can't see anything, and you turn on the lights all of a sudden, and then you see about a dozen cockroaches go running to the corner or something, you know, and why are they there? Because they love the darkness, and they don't love the light. And when you shine the light on them, they scatter. This is the condemnation. When light comes, everyone can see what you are. God can see what you are. Of course, he does anyway. But it's exposed what you are when the light comes on. Jesus Christ comes into the world, the light of the world. And can you measure up to Jesus Christ? You're condemned and a sinner and he has never sinned and is the begotten son of God. What are we next to him? Nothing. The light has come into the world and men love light. Uh, or love the darkness rather than light. And in verse 20, everyone that doeth evil hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Why is it people want to stay in darkness? I'll tell you why. Because there's pleasure in sin for a season. That season may last all your life. I don't know. But the fact is, sinners like to do what they do. Sin is somehow enjoyable for a while. It appeals to the flesh, it appeals to the mind, it appeals to to the ego, and people like it, and they want to do it, and so they do it. And sin destroys you, sin can destroy your family, sin can destroy a community, sin can destroy a whole country, and it has destroyed a whole world. Men love their sin, and they don't want it to be exposed. So let's leave this point with verse 21 which I think is the end of the the Lord speaking here. He that doeth truth, interesting expression, isn't it? He that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be comes to the truth. The light has, has shed on him, and he sees his sinfulness. He turns to the truth of God and is saved. That's what this verse is saying. So the one practicing the truth, if I can put it this way, is the one coming to the light. What is the truth? God loves you. God sent his son for you. If you believe on him, you can have everlasting life. I know that you're in condemnation and you love it, but if you'll let the light expose that and come to God, in other words, doing the truth then you'll be saved. When you accept God's truth, you will be in the light. I like an old commentator named Homer Kent. Homer Kent uh, has, has written a lot of commentaries. He was the president of Grace Theological Seminary years ago and so forth. He said this about this verse. Doing the truth, he says, is antecedent to coming to the light. Such a person does the truth when he responds with appropriate action to God's revelation and accepts the light of the gospel as proclaimed in Christ. Do the truth. And when you do the truth, then you are a child of God. And this verse says, 
now you, the things that you do are wrought in God. All right, now I want us to turn in our Bibles to the book of Romans. So, uh, you know Romans, and uh, we'll go to chapter 3 first, and we'll spend a little time there, and then we'll go to chapter 10 in the last two thoughts about salvation tonight, all right? Now, Romans is a familiar book. If you have spent much time witnessing to someone about how to be saved, very possible, maybe probable, that you've taken them some time to the book of Romans. As a matter of fact, it's so clear as you go through this book that we call it the Romans Road, right? I mean, the old Roman Empire had their roads that all roads led to Rome. And uh, in the book of Romans, all roads lead to Christ. And so we call this method of, of leading someone to Christ the Romans Road. And, and properly so. Now, uh, holding your place in chapter 3, go back to chapter 1 and verses 17 and 18 of Romans. Chapter 1, 17 and 18. After introductory words, Paul is going to say this. Verse 17. Therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, what Paul wants to talk about is how do you get the righteousness of God? But then he says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. We've talked a little about that in John. So he wants to talk about the righteousness, but he first has to talk about the wrath of God. There are two subjects here in the first part of the book. The wrath of God... So what he does is, from that verse 18, and if you know anything about Romans chapter 1, boy, what a scathing rebuke to the sins of this world that bring the wrath of God. And he stays on that subject all the way up to our passage in chapter 3 and ends in verse 20. So we go back to chapter 3 and verse 20. He is going to say that... Therefore, by the deeds of law, actually, without a, without a, an article there, shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by law is the knowledge of sin. You know what he's done? He's, he's, he's swept the whole world and put it into three categories. First of all, the, the heathen, we might say, there are those people who have never heard the gospel. And we say, well, should they be condemned? Yes. You know why? Because they're sinners. And we know also that even here in chapter 1, the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, his eternal power and Godhead, so that they're without excuse. So everyone who has never even heard the gospel is without excuse. Amazing as that might sound, that's biblical truth. Secondly, he goes to what we call the moralist, and that is, what of all the good people in the world who are doing good things, and they're good moral people, and the good citizens, and all of that? He goes through those and says, your good works can't save you, any more than the, the law of the Old Testament could save you. Thirdly, he goes to the Jews, who believe because they're children of Abraham, and because God gave them the law, surely they're the children of God, they're saved. No, not even being a Jew can save you. And so he comes down to the end, and in verse 10, which I quoted earlier, he said, there's none righteous, no, not one. And in verse 23, all of sin come short of the glory of God. Here's my, here's the wrath of God upon the whole world. We're all sinners, and everyone in this world is lost, and no one is righteous before God. So secondly, but now, verse 21, 
Let me talk to you about the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God without the law is manifested. It's only witnessed by the law and the prophets. So he's reminding us here, first of all, under the fact that salvation, the who, the basis of it, is in Jesus Christ, because it's without the law. If you are trying to get to heaven by working your way there, sorry, there's no road that leads to heaven that way. Because the whole world has been condemned. The the law, no matter if it's the Jewish law, that can't save you. If it's your own personal law of good works, that can't save you. Whatever law you come up with, it's not going to take you to God. You can't get there by good works. So he's reiterating that first of all. Secondly, then he says... Even the righteousness of God, now he's talking again about the righteousness of God from verse 21. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ. We've had a little taste of that, but he'll finish up his thought here. That is, righteousness has to be given to you. We, we found that out in John 3.16. It's the gift of God. He gave it. So, do you work for your salvation? Do you be good? Do you keep the law? No way to get to God that way. No matter who you are in this world. How do you, how do you find the righteousness of God? <laughs> it comes through a thing called faith, which is the gift of God to you. Without any effort on your part. Without any merit on your part. So, verse 23, or, or, sorry, verse 22. The righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ... And I'll only say, there's no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. It's not just your faith in whatever religion you want, your faith in this or that. It's got to be your faith in Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Unto all and upon all. Again, here we are again. Whosoever believes upon all. That, again, what was the condition? That we believe. So, verse 23, I think, is a wonderful, positive verse. Not just because it says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, which is truth. I like to begin verse 23 at the end of verse 22 and include that last phrase. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In other words, suppose God figured that somewhere in all of this world, there were a few people who would be good enough to be saved by their good works. Then God would have made salvation by good works. And you would have had to strive to be one of those few who could make it by good works. But you know what he's concluded after three chapters? What? There's none righteous. No, not one. All have sinned. This becomes the good news, folks. You know why? Because instead of God saying to us, you have to work your way to heaven, he's saying, you can't do it, so I'm going to make it, so all you have to do is receive it. And we say, praise the Lord. I don't have to work to get to heaven. All I have to do is receive it? Why is that? Because everyone's a sinner. And if I made it that way, no one would be saved. No one could be saved. Because all's, all, everyone is condemned. So I see verse 23, and that phrase, there's no difference between anybody. 
between a good person and a bad person, between a religious person and a non-religious person, between, you know, an American and a Russian. <laughs> There's no difference between anybody. All of sin. Nobody can make it. So God in his great love for us said, I'll do this. I'll make it a gift. And anybody can receive a gift. Anybody can take it if you only believe, which is not a good work. It's just your receiving of the gift. So following that thought, in verses 24 and 25, we talk about the work of Christ, what he did here a little bit. So notice now being justified. And, and, and under that, I don't think I put this on your outline. Maybe I did. There's three big words here I want you to notice. You have them? Okay. Number one, uh, being justified freely by his grace. Secondly, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then whom God has set forth to be, thirdly, a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Let me briefly just speak about these three words. Justified. It's a, uh, it's a legal term. It's a courtroom term, a forensic term as we call it. And that is, you had a list of sins. You had a slate, uh, a debit side and a credit side, and your debit side goes about a hundred miles down, and there's nothing on your credit side or on your credit side. So, uh, your slate is not justified. When you do, you still justify a checkbook. I guess we still do that, or does the bank do it for us? Or I don't know. You have an automatic program, but you know, uh, here's what I spent this month, and here's what I have left, and I have to justify my checkbook to make sure it comes out, you know, uh, in the black and not uh, not in the red. Well, there's no way we can do that with our sins, and so God has justified our account. And we'll see why, but basically because he is going to put the righteousness of Jesus Christ in your credit column, and he's going to erase everything that's in your debit column. So that when God looks at you, your account is justified. It's, it's given to you in that, in that sense. Now, redemption means it's paid for. When you redeem something, you pay for it. Have you ever used a coupon that you can redeem and you get credit for it? Uh, by the way, I, I have a gift that God has given me that maybe none of you have, but God's given me this gift. And that is, I can go into a store, a grocery store, a hardware store, any kind of store, and I guarantee you, I can pick out the longest line to the cash register. <laughs> I have that gift, and it will happen every time. So uh, I was I was at uh, uh, well it's a sporting goods store to buy a pair of shoes okay I'm buying some tennis shoes here and so uh, I go to the cash registers and there's about three or four lanes open and it's pretty busy and I look around and I see this line's full this line this line and in that line there's only one guy I'll go I'll go there I get in that line. The guy in front of me had a, a cart with about six or seven shoe boxes in it. And I'm kind of, I smiled at him, you know, I saw him in the shoe aisle back there. And I said, you buying shoes for your whole family? And he just kind of smiled and, and uh, you know, like, yes, I am. 
And when he starts checking out, he pulls out this list of coupons, and he's got these redeemable coupons. And the poor guy at the cash register, he's trying to scan all those, and then he takes out his phone, and now he's got, you know, a bunch more on his phone. Meanwhile, I'm sitting there, and I'm waiting for all this to happen. And the guy in the back of the longest line over here is already through. It's my gift. I tell you, I, you know, I, I, I know these things. But you know what? I think when that guy was done, I don't know if he paid anything for all those shoes. If he did, I didn't see it. You know, maybe he put it, flashed his credit card, tapped it on there. I don't know. But, but I don't know why I went down that rabbit trail. I'm just saying. We're redeemed. And Jesus Christ is our redemption. We showed that to the Father, and the Father said, you can go through. Everything's paid for. And that's what Jesus Christ did for us. Redeem, in that old world, it was a slave world, of course, in the Roman Empire. And people were bought and sold, of course. And this expression of redemption comes from the slave market, actually, where people were being bought. And there's one expression of this that means somebody goes in and he pays the price for that person. Another expression is, Ex agorazo means I paid the price and I'm taking him out of the slave market to pay and to take out. And a third one means I paid, I take him, taking him out and I've set him free. Three, three words for redemption in our New Testament express one of those three actions. And so in a way too, uh, God goes into the slave market of sin. He puts down the price for all of us. And he takes us all out of the slave. And what was the slave market? I've got to work for my own salvation. That's what I'm doing. He takes us out of that slave market and he sets us free. Let me add to that. Sometimes a slave, especially in the Jewish culture, and it wasn't slavery like it was in the Roman Empire, but, but in the Jewish culture, uh, somebody says, I don't want to go free. You're my master. I want to live with you. So you know what they did? They took him to the doorpost and took his ear and took a chunk out of the bottom of his ear. So he had a mark in his body that said, I belong to that man. And for the rest of his life, he served the one who paid his price, took him out of the slave market and set him free. And his freedom was, I want to serve you the rest of my life. When Paul gets goes to Galatia on his first missionary trip, he's stoned and left for dead. The wounds are still dripping when he writes the book of Galatians back to those people about the freedom we have in Christ. It's not by the works of the law, but by the grace of Jesus Christ. And you know what the last sentence or or close to the last sentence of the book is? I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. These stripes and these stone marks on me are like the the piercing of my ear I belong to the one who set me free and that's what God wants of us too is to serve him the rest of our life so propitiation means the wrath of God is removed it's the remove it's the wrath removing action upon us and so God's wrath then is removed and and he's talked about the wrath of God for three chapters so here it's a it's great news that uh, we have the propitiation uh, through faith in his blood or by his blood. 
And so his blood is applied to us and has removed God's wrath from us. Let me go to a third thought here then, and that is, this is all for God's glory, he's going to say. So now we have these interesting verses 25 and 26 from the second part of 25. To declare his righteousness. Stop and say, who who's he talking about here? He's talking about Jesus Christ, right? He's not talking about us, obviously. He's done all of this to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God to declare, and Paul's going to say it again so we don't forget it, I say at this time his righteousness that he, which I think refers to God the Father, that he might be just and justifier of those that believe, of him that believes in Jesus. So what is what is he saying here? He's saying that, first of all, Jesus Christ is righteous, you are not. He said that so far. How can God look at you and not just forgive your sin? We understand this. You know, a sinner might say, well, if God is God, why does he send me to hell? Why doesn't he just say, I love you, come into heaven? I love you, I don't care about your sin. I'm God, I can do what I want to do, right? Isn't that kind of the way the world thinks? And they think when they die and they stand before God, that's, they're hoping that's what God does for them. Well, you've been a pretty good person, come on in. You know, that, I've been to a lot of funerals where uh, people are, are preached into heaven, you know, by uh, now they're such a wonderful person now that they're dead, you know, and gone. But God doesn't do that because God is just and righteous and he can't just ignore the sin, and he will not. If he does, he's unjust. So how does God remain God and still let us into heaven? Well, because he has taken the righteousness of Jesus Christ and put it in our credit column. And he's a rate, therefore taken away our sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. And when God looks at you and me as a believer, what does he see? He sees the righteousness of Christ. And if God says to somebody like that, come into my heaven, God is just in doing it. Because he doesn't see sin. And the sin truly has been forgiven and taken away by the cross of Jesus Christ. You looked at your sin hanging on that cross, and it's taken away by the blood of that cross. He nailed it to that cross, Paul will say. So that's what he's saying. And so God remains just, and secondly, verse 26, and justifier. <laughs> he can justify the sinner and, and still be just. And there's only one way in the world that that could happen, is by the Son of God, the only righteous person who ever lived, his righteousness be being put on your, your account. Okay. So, some have called this the great transaction. The transaction, the great transaction is done. My sin was put on his account, and his righteousness is put on my account. What does the scripture say in 2 Corinthians, for example? He hath made him to be sin for us. The one who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So God put our sin upon a righteous person, let him die for those sins, 
But because he, Jesus was righteous, he was put in the grave. He himself, uh, the, the grave and sin has no hold on him. So he came up out of the grave proving that he was the right sacrifice for our sin. So our sin was put on him, but his righteousness is put on us. Some have said he took alien sin upon him and we take alien righteousness upon us. He took sin that was not his. We took righteousness that was not ours. God remains just and God remains justifier. Philip Bliss wrote an old song, Hallelujah, tis done. How many of you remember, remember an old song like that? Hallelujah, tis done. I believe on the Son. I am saved by the blood of the crucified one. Hallelujah, the, tr- the great transaction is done. All right, I want us to quickly go to Romans 10, if you will. Let's end, let's end with this final thought in Romans 10. What is the means then? How is it done? How do you receive Christ as Savior? What, how does this transaction take place? Well, first of all, we really could back up to verse 4. And when you're in verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. We've gone over that. In other words, it's not by faith or by works. It is by faith. If you're going to receive the righteousness of God, it's not going to be by works. He, he kind of summarizes everything he said in the book up to this point. In verses 6 and 7, he talks about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's actually going to quote Moses. And then you might, if you have a parenthesis marked in your Bible, that's Paul's explanation of what Moses is saying. So, for example, uh, he will say in verse 6, for the, and he said in verse 5, right, Moses describes the righteousness of the law. In verse 6, the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thine heart who shall ascend into heaven. That's what Moses said. Paul interprets it for us. That is to bring Christ down from above. Or, he quotes Moses again, who shall descend into the deep. Paul interpret that for us. That is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. Where does this righteousness come from? Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. He came down from heaven. Light has come into the world. You want to know God? Know somebody who's been there. The Son of God. He came. Well, what did he do? He died and rose from the dead. Moses even said it, Paul is saying to us. Now, verse 8, well then what says it? What saith it? The word is nigh or near thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. This is the word of faith which we preach. You know what he's saying? This is the gospel. This is what I'm preaching to you. It is the gospel. And what is the gospel, folks? 1 Corinthians 15. Isn't it the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Yeah, I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So he's already gone over the the person of Jesus Christ, his resurrection, and he's saying, those words are near you. They've, they've been in your Old Testament for 1,500 years. They're right there in your mouth. Do you understand what they're saying? Nicodemus, you know, said, 
no, I don't understand. (laughs) You know, and and the Ethiopian eunuch said, how can I understand unless somebody shows me? Well, Paul's showing them. He's explaining what it is. So we come to these wonderful two verses, 9 and 10, which, uh, by the way, uh, this is the word of faith which we preach, and now he's going to give it that. And he begins to say it. Now, let's read these two together, and you have, secondly, on your outline, we must believe it then, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. Now, let me stop here and say, Moses said the one somebody needs to go to heaven and find out, and Paul says somebody did, and he came down to us. Who is the Lord Jesus? Who is he? He's God in the flesh. He's God's son. Secondly, and thou shalt believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead. So there are two things that are necessary in belief. The person of Christ and the work of Christ. If you reject who Jesus is... There's no salvation in that. You can't say, well, I think he was a good man. I think he was a great teacher or something like that, uh, a great example. That doesn't save you. He is God in the flesh. He is, he is the eternal God. Secondly, you might say, well, I can't believe somebody could come out of the grave. I think maybe a, a spirit did, but I can't. No, if he didn't come out of the grave bodily, then there's no salvation in it. So the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ is believing you, you confess who the Lord Jesus is. And secondly, that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now, I only want to say this much about those words, if you will, for purposes of what we're saying. Believe, confess, confess, believe. For our purposes here, all are doing the same thing. You've got to accept this. You've got to believe it and accept it. And what you have to believe is who he is, he's the Lord, what he did, his death, burial, and resurrection. And we can say to a sinner, do you believe these things? Do you do you believe this? That this is who Jesus Christ is? Do you believe in his resurrection? Now, notice thirdly, though, I have, you must accept it. And so we also have calling upon the Lord and accepting. There is no difference, he says again in verse 12, between Jew and Greek like we had in chapter 3. The same Lord over all is rich unto all, anybody who calls on him. For whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, I think this is that ethical, this is that ethical element that we have. You have to receive it. You have, believing can be only in the head without being in the heart. Or sometimes the word believe is used in a volitional sense of you're calling, you're asking Jesus Christ to save you. That makes us, again, evangelical. We go saying, but you must be born again. You need to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. It's not just in, in your head, it's also in your heart. As somebody says, a lot of people have missed heaven by 18 inches or whatever that is between your, your head and your heart. And I think that's exactly what's saying. So notice his natural order in verse 14. How shall they call on him and who they have not believed? How shall they believe in him and who they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And not only that, how can they even preach except they be sent? If you turn that around, first of all, somebody 
goes, somebody sends out, that's why we all send missionaries, and that's why we should be missionaries. We're sent out so that people can hear. If people don't hear the gospel, verse 17, faith comes by what? Hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So first of all, somebody has to hear it. If you don't hear it, you're not going to be saved. And secondly, uh, not only do you have to hear it, but you also have to believe it. I mean, you can't deny these facts. And then, having believed it, you can call on him to save you. That's, that's evangelism. That's the word of God. Now, there's false faith. And we could go into that for a ways. But let me, let me uh, just read John 12 real quick. John 12, 42. Uh, Among the chief rulers also many believed on him, quote unquote. Not because, or, uh, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. So even though they had a head knowledge, it never got to the heart. It never got to the acceptance of it. It never got to, I'll make that mine. And regardless of what you may say about, you know, from our mild Calvinism to extreme Calvinism, there's still that idea that you still must call and you still must believe yourself. Now, that word call upon is is also translated in one place in the book of Acts, I appeal to. And it was when Paul was being tried and finally he said, I appeal to Caesar. The exact same word translated to call upon the Lord. I appeal to Caesar. He said, you've appealed to Caesar, unto Caesar thou shalt go. You appeal to the Lord Jesus Christ to be your Savior. That's where you'll go. That's the way it is. Now, I'll end, I'll end with just this last thought, if you will. Jesus said, except we become as a little child, we can't come. He wasn't saying only children are going to be in heaven. He wasn't saying, you know, well, all, I do believe there's an age of accountability, but uh, not just because of a certain age, but you have to become as a little child of these little ones who believe. Children can come to Christ by faith at a certain age. Praise the Lord for it. And you know why? Because they're not as confused as adults. That's basically why. They don't have all the baggage that adults have when they're trying to be saved. All of the excuses, all of the reasons why I can't believe. You've got to become like one of these little ones. That word is pronounced micros, little ones, micros. We get the word micro from it, <laughs> micros, these little ones. Paul said later, I've been witnessing to small and great, micros and mega, small and great. And as a matter of fact, the parable of the mustard seed, the mustard seed is the smallest of seeds, micros. All of that just tells us this, folks. You can come to Jesus Christ as your Savior because you can come with childlike faith. You just have to put away your adult objections and all that has clouded the the road since that time and go back to that time when Daddy would say, jump into my arms, and you jumped. God says, look unto me, and you'll live. And that's what we have to do. That's the gospel. That's the message of Jesus Christ. We need to give it out 
And if we don't know Christ as our Savior, someone listening to my voice now or later, uh, that's what you have to do to be saved. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you, Father, for the truth of salvation. And we have only skimmed some of the verses and passages in your word, but yet it's so full. It's all throughout. This is our New Testament, and we believe it. Thank you for the, for the incarnation of the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God. Thank you for loving us and sending your Son. Thank you that he died in our place and took our sins to the cross. He was buried and he rose again to prove that he is our Savior. And Father, we've accepted him as our Savior. Make us good ministers. Make us good ambassadors of this truth that we know. And Father, if there's someone that doesn't know Jesus Christ as Savior, I pray that through all the the messages that are preached in this world, through all the good people who witness for Christ in this world, may there be a harvest of souls before Jesus comes. Bless in this time of salvation, this day of salvation that we have. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Matt's going to come. Dr. Schrader got to meet my mom, and it was an enjoyable time with mom. But I do have a memory. At nine years old, my mom tried to lead me to Christ. She told me that my heart was dirty with sin, and to make it clean like snow, I needed to let Jesus in. That's how my mom talked to me as a nine-year-old. She asked me to pray with her, And I did that. I prayed with my mom because my mom wanted me to and I love my mom. But it wasn't real for me. Eight years later, as a 17-year-old, I realized that was not a genuine thing that I'd done between me and God when mom asked me to pray. That was actually tomorrow... 50 years ago that I realized thanks, tomorrow is my birthday 50 years old in the Lord what happened was I talked with a, a friend about my concern and he shared with me among other verses Romans 10, 9 that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. I did. In prayer, I knelt beside my bed that night, and I told God in the best way I knew how, I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and God, and that he paid the price for my sin when he died on Calvary's cross, and that he rose again, just as that verse says. Please save me. Guess what? I had a birthday that day. September 29th, actually, was the date, 1973. Although it was a Saturday, that was the beginning of a new life for me. Maybe there's someone here who is not absolutely sure. Maybe there's someone listening somehow that's not absolutely sure that they've made that decision. You make sure tonight. We're going to sing a song in closing, but if you are not sure, you talk with one of our ladies, like my wife, 
or you talk with me or Pastor Rick or Dr. Rick, and we, the most important decision you can ever make is this one on salvation. There's more to come, and I'm looking forward to that. But uh, this is where it begins. I'd like to uh, take <laughs> the song that he mentioned in the message, Look and Live, number 354. And Joshua, would you lead us as we're dismissed tonight? I'd like to ask everybody to stand. And we'll sing number 354, Look and Live. And then we'll be dismissed. from the Lord, hallelujah, a message unto you I give, tis recorded in his word, hallelujah, it is only that you look and live, look and live, my brother live, look to Jesus now and is recorded in his word, hallelujah, it is only that you look and live. I've a message full of love, hallelujah, a message, oh my friend, for you. Tis a message from above, hallelujah, Jesus said it and I know tis true. brother live look to Jesus now and live tis recorded in his word hallelujah it is only that you look and live life is offered unto you hallelujah eternal life your soul shall have if you'll only look to him Word, hallelujah, it is only that you look.